And welcome back. It's another edition of Mile High Magazine. Yep, I'm Murphy Houston. Hope your Sunday's going well. Today we're talking uh, to Carol Borcht, who's our Vice President of Marketing. Did I say that right, Carol? Borchert. Borchert. Mm-hmm. i put that on my notes here. Okay. And Carol's here, and so is Dr. Kelly Deal, Senior Director of Science of what you're wondering about? It's the Morris Animal Foundation. You know, we were talking before we started recording here, ladies. I've been in Denver for a long time and never heard of you guys. So I guess Carol will start asking you, could you tell us a little bit about the Morris Animal Foundation so that we know what you're all about? Sure, Murphy. Morris Animal Foundation has actually been around since 1948. So What? More than 70 <laughs> years. I know. I mean, that, what? <laughs> well, okay, that, now we know it's been here for a while. <laughs> We've been here for a while. Our headquarters are in Denver. But even before that, Dr. Mark Morris Sr., who was the founder of the organization, He began in veterinary practice in 1928, and at that time, there was so little information known about how do you care for our companion animals, our cats and dogs, and Dr. Morris decided that that was going to be the area he wanted to focus on after veterinary school, so he opened one of the very first small animal veterinary practices in the country, and that was in Raritan, New Jersey. Okay. And he was very interested in research. He wanted to learn more so he could improve the care of cats and dogs, which were now becoming household pets. Sure. They weren't just working animals anymore. And uh, in 1948, he established the foundation. And since then, we've conducted more than 2,200 animal health studies, more than 155 million invested in animal health, and really across all diseases and and not just cats and dogs, but horses and wildlife, too. Well, but they're part of it, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's all animals, that, almost all animals, that would be like pets. Correct. That's the focus. The focus is... Not farm for, animals. For us, right. And that's no. really the only group, because there's plenty of money for research for livestock. Sure, sure there right? is. The USDA provides a lot of funding for health for... Uh, production animals. But for our cats and dogs and horses and wildlife, there's actually very, very little money available to advance their health and help them live longer lives. So now do you work with all kinds of animal shelters and vet clinics, all that's out there now? There's so much since 1948. Right. And, you know, when we started the foundation, There just wasn't a good body of knowledge for how to care for our companion animals. And so the focus of the foundation has always been to build that science, to build that knowledge, and to advance veterinary medicine while advancing animal care. And, you know, in this country, about 53% of our households have companion animals. Uh, the The Simmons survey shows that there's about 77 million dogs and 54 million cats and they've become so important in our lives. Oh, yeah. And we want to provide the best care that we can. And that's really one of the, the roles of the foundation is to fund the research needed to help our companion animals live their best lives. Well, let's talk to uh, Dr. Kelly Deal. What's your role with the Morris Animal Foundation, Doc? Well, I basically am a content generator. So I am wow. one of the folks who <laughs> do a lot of the writing. Okay. Um, that goes into everything from uh, our donor newsletters to our tweets to our Facebook 
and a lot of different communications, emails. I also do a podcast. Wow. So I'm familiar with the microphone. Yeah, you uh, are. Yeah. And those and, are very popular now, podcasts. And we, we started that to try to give information mostly to a veterinary audience because we have a lot of communication to our general audience. And I also provide some scientific input when we get a grant or if they need a little bit more information. I was in practice for about 25 years. so In veterinary medicine. In, in here in Denver, yes. Right. So I have a little bit of that knowledge. And I also serve as, uh, as we may talk about later, you know, our Golden Retriever Lifetime Study, which is this big, giant study that we're managing. I also provide um, input as one of the study veterinarians who assists people when they call in with questions about their dogs and the study. Well, what kind of, I don't know, advances, I guess is the word I can use, have you guys funded? What, what What's happened that didn't happen before you were involved at the uh, Morris Animal Foundation? Right. Um, one of the things I think that everybody out there probably has heard of is parvovirus. Oh, yeah. Dogs. And we're really proud because we were one of the first funders of the folks at Cornell who were investigating this mysterious disease, which some of us who are old enough, unfortunately, remember. Sure. Cropped up, was really serious, killing dogs in the late 70s. And we were instrumental in providing some of that seed money, which then went to develop a vaccine. That was the ultimate outcome. But we were there at the very beginning when folks said, hey, we need some help trying to figure out what's going on here. And we also worked on the first feline leukemia virus vaccine and provided some of the funding to the researchers who went on to develop that. And in fact, we were a lot more hands-on with that particular development. So those are two. For the horse owners out there, uh, again, I think a lot of us remember in the mid-80s when mysterious illness, again, was affecting horses, which was termed Potomac horse fever, which started on the East Coast. It's um, And that was another disease because we do fund a lot of equine research that, again, people came to us early on. We need some help. We've got this disease. It looks bad. And we were instrumental in helping with identify the organism, the early diagnostic tests, and the vaccine for that as well. So you provide the funding for all of that kind of research. Right. Wow. Right. Which requires a lot of money, right, Carol? And aren't you guys doing something now? Like you're kind of you're in December, your end of the year campaign saying, hey, we've done good things and we want to do more. Right. You know, every year, Murphy, we approve a whole new slate of studies. So at any given time, we have around 150 active studies that we're funding globally. So most of our research, we have people who apply for grants with the foundation, and then we provide the funding to them. And that goes through a, a scientific approval process that's really robust. So Morris Animal Foundation is, is very respected in terms of integrity and the scientific programs that we fund. But like you said, this is all private funding. Sure. So we fundraise every year to cover the cost of these scientific studies. It's around 7 to $8 million a year that we're spending. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's... Wow. You know, and we feel like we are only scratching the surface of the need out there. Um, Kelly touched, you know, a little bit on the, the cat and dog and horse studies that we've funded, but... A huge amount of our research funding, you know, a, a significant portion, about a third of it, does go to wildlife studies. And we really focus on endangered species. There are species that we are 
you know, are, are at critical stages right now. Uh, the Tasmanian devil and the koala and the saiga antelope, where there's very little research funding to bring these species back from the brink of extinction. And that's work that we're funding as well. So we're one of the very few organizations to fund wildlife health studies, not just, just poaching or pets. habitat. Yeah. Um, of course, uh, Right now, amphibians are under threat globally from a fungal infection. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Kelly, can you? Yeah, we don't yeah. hear we don't hear about this no, stuff. No, no. <laughs> and I think a lot of folks out there probably have heard. You know, there's been concern about the, uh, the amphibian populations declining, right? Sure. And for and certainly climate change is part of it, but part of it is also this fungal infection. We know from a paper that was recently published by some of our researchers that uh, patient zero or ground zero was in Korea about 100 years ago. And as the ornamental amphibian trade grew, amphibians from that region dispersed around the world. Sure, And they carried a fungus with them that now has become entrenched in several different frog populations all over the globe, and it's leading to these massive declines. There's unfortunately a new fungal infection that affects salamanders that has not made it to this country yet, but we're funding studies because it's a big concern. And many people don't realize that the highest diversity of salamanders is actually in North America. And so I know that there's only one kind of salamander. <laughs> so dumb I am. Right. The, you know, the ones we fight are the guys around here. But um, so this is a big concern, right? If this infection reaches the, the North America, it would be devastating. I mean, it could wipe out sp- the whole species. It could, for sure. And wow. um, so uh, and as we know, everybody, we're in this giant web together, right? And things are <laughs> yeah. interdigitated. I think a lot more than sometimes we realize. Well, we don't know. Right. And so a loss of a species may have these ripple effects that may not, as you said, may not even be apparent to us right now. And uh, so this new fungal infection is a big concern. And we see sometimes we ride the trends of what researchers are concerned about. Right. Sure, sure. So they'll come to us with a grant and they'll say, this is becoming a problem and we need help. And again, as Carol mentioned, there's just not a lot of funding out there that's dedicated to animal health concerns, especially in wildlife. We talk about conservation a lot, sure. and that, of course, protects wildlife. But when diseases strike, people will come to us and ask for help. And so we have mechanisms in place, not just to go through our regular grant system, but also to try to respond to, for wildlife, immediate concerns. For example, we funded a lot of research when the Deep Horizon oil spill happened. Oh, that was a tragic event. Right. Yeah. And people came to us and said, we need we need help now. Yeah. Right? right. We need money now to study the effects of this. And Carol, when we talk about the fact that people don't aren't aware until there's a crisis situation, then it seems to be everywhere. Why is that? Yeah. Is it people that, oh, they're only animals, we've got to kill, cure cancer or whatever it might be, and they don't have a focus there unless you're in that particular wave of life, I guess. So this is what you do or here. We're talking about making people aware of this crisis, and they should be aware of it because eventually, as uh, the good doctor just said, if we lose a species, we don't know the all effect of that. But we don't think about it enough. We're not aware of that. How do we solve that? Well, part of it is being here with you today, Murphy. So we really appreciate it. 
the other part of it is, you know, I, I feel like sometimes people think that it's it's so overwhelming when we look at the events happening in the world. Right. That we, we can't change everything, so we decide to change nothing. But we have found at That's the That's an found, interesting comment. Right. Well, yeah. we have found at the foundation that we may not be able to do everything, but we can do a lot. And we have actually had great success, especially with some of the endangered species we've worked with, in bringing those populations back and giving them a shot at staying on the planet a little while longer. So one thing that people can do to help is they can help fund research. They can you know, either support Morris Animal Foundation or another organization that is really in the trenches trying to help the biodiversity, this amazing biodiversity on our planet, stick around for not not just us, but our children and our grandchildren. So they can support those organizations. They can go to morrisanimalfoundation.org, sign up for our newsletters, and they'll stay up to date every month on on what's sure. happening in animal sure. health, sure. plus tips for how to care for their own animals. Well, and we are, we're talking about money, and it requires, I can't even imagine, no wonder you're giving away $7 million a year to do some of this research, which is highly intense, right. about there's a special match going on? Is there a match? Yes. So right now we are in our end-of-year giving campaign, which right. is uh, taking us through December 31st, and our very generous board of directors have contributed a matching gift of $200,000. So wow. every gift up to $200,000 will be matched by our board of directors. And the end of year campaign, you know, it's just a very important time of the year for us. These couple months are when we actually raise the majority of our funding that's going to take us into the next fiscal year and support the next round of research. What You don't get any federal funding, no tax dollars. It's all no. private funding to survive mm-hmm. and to help the cause. Right. Now, and- we are we are very fortunate in that early on in the foundation's history, um, Dr. Morris established an endowment, and that covers the majority of our administrative costs. Really? Yes. So the most of what comes into us from donors goes into scientific programs. So those dollars go right to work helping animals have the longer, healthier lives that we want them to have. And there's always concern now because there's so many people after the, the, the dollar. Where's the money go? What am I paying for? Is, right. it, is it going right to research? And you're saying it does. Yes. Well, that's important to know. It's, it's good work. Are you guys headquartered here in Denver, the Morris Animal Foundation? Yes, we are. Who knew? Yeah. Well, here we <laughs> I go know. again. I mean, if it started on the East Coast, I think, well, maybe that's where the headquarters are. Right. We no. have about 50 people here in Denver, and but, you know, our funding goes globally. I was going to say all yes. over the world. You were all just saying that. We do fund... Of course, we fund Colorado State University, right? Big veterinary school, school there. Sure. We fund UC uh, uh, UC Boulder. So we do fund researchers locally. Uh, in fact, as Kelly was mentioning about the Kittred study, we're actually funding a researcher in Colorado who's doing some Kittred research to that that fungus disease in amphibians. So we do fund locally, but we we fund all over the world. Good work here. It's uh, Carol Borchert, Vice President, Marketing and Brand Strategy. Dr. Kelly Deal, Senior Director of Science and Communications for Moore's Animal Foundation. If my eyes are like twirling in my head, I'm learning so much here in our brief half-hour gathering that who knew not only with the work you're doing, but you're right here in Denver, right, right in our right. backyard doing work right here. Good job, you guys. 
So you get this money, and, and then, doctor, are you involved with who gets what and how much? Um, no. And that's, I think, one of the unique and really important aspects of our foundation is we have, we gather experts from around the world, actually, right. that meet here at three times a year, and they look at our grants. So they're somewhat independent, and they're researchers. Typically, we like researchers that have gotten grants from us before. Some of them are active grant holders, and they look at every grant application that we receive and really carefully scrutinize them so that we are funding the very best research. I mean, we're trying to be good stewards, right, of folks' money. Well, you have Um, to be. And so we want to make sure that the research we're funding is the best research and by getting, again, the experts. And it also puts us a step away from that, right? They're telling us and they're advising us, here's what we would recommend for funding. So they, you know, look at the proposals, they rank them. Sure. And then they go, okay, here's here's what we think is the your, you know, best use of your money. And they they give us the slate of what they approve. The problem is we often don't have enough money oh, you to don't. fund everything uh, yeah. that they even approve, that they say this is worthy. And uh, so we fall short of being able to do that. So then someone might have to, you know, unfortunately you go, hey, we thought it was worthy. It's a great proposal, but we can't fund it. And so they have to go through the grant cycle again. And we typically get anywhere from 170, let's say average of 170 proposals, and we fund 11 of them. Oh, my goodness. By the time you filter them down. Now, we... From that 170, typically we have 80 that go on, you know, they get a first look, then they go on for kind of a deep dive into what they're doing. But of those 80, only, again, maybe typically 15 to 17 will be recommended for funding, and maybe we can do 9 or 10. Because the average cost of a study is about hundred grand, wow. um, and that's for yeah. the life of the study, which is typically two or three years. And when we commit to that, we commit to those three years, right? Sure. Whatever it's going to take. Sure. But it is, um, it's challenging and it's disappointing sometimes for us. Uh, them and I would say Kelly too. That's three times a year that we do that, right? Those oh, grants. Oh, three times. Three, three times, times a, year. a year, right? So it's going through that process for our small animal group, oh. our large animal group, and wildlife. That that's a lot of work. It's I, a lot and, of work. And let me ask you this: I do some work with cancer research or with the CU Cancer Research Center, mm-hmm. and I started a charity with a couple of buddies. We raise money for cancer research. We sit down, like you just mentioned, with four or five scientists that are got some cutting edge technology for any kind of cancer so we throw 50 grand at them to seed their project right but then at some point the federal government goes this is really good here's two million dollars do you have that kind of support from the federal government at some point occasionally yes we have had a couple of researchers be able to come to us first and then leverage what they find with us. Um, one that I'm thinking of is there's a gal, Dr. Megan Davis. She's a veterinarian. She works at John, Johns Hopkins in their School of Public Health. She's the first veterinarian. So really? I was going to say, you wouldn't think yeah. of a veterinarian and, there. And she was interested, though, in MRSA. So oh, I think a lot wow. of people know about MRSA. Yeah, sure do. And she wanted to look at um, animals in the household of a person with MRSA because that's a big burning question, right? Can Does it cause it or back, help it? Or Right, back and forth. Yeah. You know, it's a MRSA is a strictly human 
bug. It is, yeah. But, um, and she could not get any money. Nobody was interested. Morris was interested. We gave her a grant. She did extraordinarily well with the grant. Um, got some preliminary findings that then she leveraged into. Then the NIH said, oh, we're kind of interested in this. Yeah. And gave her a million dollars So right. to look into it. But it was... Um, she has been a great spokesperson for us as a way to get the money that she needed to get her preliminary data. And it happens. It doesn't happen a lot, but we do see people come to us first and then just to get the basic Just findings. get it going. Right. Just a little seed money right. to right. help my project a little bit and let it grow and see where we go with it. Right. right. That's why you guys are so important. Right, right. So, and maybe, Doctor or Carol, maybe you can give me an idea. I'm going to donate to these guys. Where's my money going to go? Can you name some projects maybe that might spark an interest in some of our listeners? Sure, there's a couple. Um, right now, I um, we have several cool wildlife projects. We have one that is on um, the Darwin's finches. So, you know, Darwin. Right. Darwin went to the Galapagos, the famous finches. Well, they are actually under attack by a parasitic wasp that unfortunately got brought to the island like so many things right. with tourism and boats and other things and it is decimating these finches like they are on the verge of becoming extinct the classic darwin's finches so we're funding a project that's trying to look at well how can we stop this how can we get rid of this wasp that um this parasitic larva that's that's attacking the finches so it's a really important project sure obviously is. and that's a really cool one there's another one that we're working with the San Diego Zoo oh with a little, that's a great zoo by it, the way it's a wonderful yeah. and they have a really a vigorous research program we've actually worked with them before and this one researcher is looking at I think a problem that we're facing when a species is pushed to the brink of extinction. But then is brought back. Okay, we've funded a study in black-footed ferrets, and I think everybody knows they sure. were like down to eighteen individuals when they were pulled back from extinction. And they're looking at San Diego Zoo at this little mouse called the Pacific Pocket Mouse. <laughs> Used to be all over the place. They thought it was extinct in the eighties, but found three little colonies: two on Camp Pendleton. Really? And one at Dana Point, which is near um, San Diego. But there are these little tiny populations. San Diego Zoo grabbed some individuals, brought them in. But what happens is you have just a few animals left. That's not a lot of genetic diversity. Right. Right? They have to inbreed. I mean, they have to breed. Right. But you run into some problems. So they're looking at how when you have just a tiny population left – how do you optimize? How do you look at them genetically so that you can bring them back which without running into the problems of inbreeding? Wow. And so it's some really interesting pro – those are two wildlife ones. We have um, some – I think everyone's heard a lot about the microbiome. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Heard about that. And, um, Even I've heard about that. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. We have um, a lot of folks interested in the microbiome of animals, yeah. just like in, in us. And we have some uh, horse studies looking at the microbiome of horses and colic. Um, we have a lot of cat and dog studies. One's looking at the respiratory microbiome in cats. All of us who've owned cats probably have heard them sneeze. Yeah. They get a little respiratory infection, and is there something about the um, bacteria that are in the nose of cats that protect them or make them susceptible? We're also looking at the gut microbiome in relation to um, some intestinal diseases of 
dogs and how the microbiome may change or not change sure. with that. And can we manipulate it? Because that's the big $64,000, million-dollar wow. question. So, you got a lot going on. Yeah. We have a ton oh going on. So, well, Carol- and I, I'll tell you, too, Murphy, I think a, a big part of what we continue to fund are cancer studies. Because so many of our right. cats and dogs are impacted by cancer. Mm-hmm. Very true. And at, at really, we that's just a, a constant need that we see. We're funding clinical trials. We're funding pilot studies that are looking at potentially new approaches to cancer treatment. Need all of that, too. Mm-hmm. Need yeah. all of it. So how do we give the money? I mean, we're talking about money. I mean, go to the website? Go to the website, morrisanimalfoundation.org. And you'll just see right there as you log on or as you... Go into our website. You'll see the opportunity to give right there, and you'll see the matching gift as well. Good idea. Great. Do it. Do it today because there's stuff going on. You'll find out on the website what is going on that you're not Mm -hmm. aware of. And before, we're just buzzing through this time. I wanted to talk about the Golden Retriever Study. What's that all about? Right. And um, as Carol mentioned, you know, we have invested a lot in cancer research over the years, and probably the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study is our biggest cancer project we, for those of you who are out there, I mean, we know golden retrievers have a very high cancer rate they do. as a breed of dog. And so this study was first begun. We started enrolling in 2012. We've enrolled 3,000 dogs. We stopped enrolling in 2015, and we're watching these guys as they move, live their lives. And we're looking at cancer risk factors is ultimately part of the goal of the study. And so we monitor the dogs, the owners fill out these really extensive, almost 100-page questionnaires with questions, everything from what does your dog eat to what kind of flooring do you have in the house, what kind of chemical exposures do they have, does your neighbor spray the lawn, do you spray the lawn? And we're following them and looking at the development of cancers, other diseases too, but in particular cancer in these individuals. So we're in our eighth year now, um, and so we've got a... A little over 2,800 dogs still in the study. Anything happening that's positive? Uh, well, um, we've have, we're looking back on, because all of our dogs have aged out of four years, looking back at young dog stuff right now. So sure. we're actually looking at, we're very interested in looking at spay and neuter and the timing of spay and neuter and its effect on health. We're looking at outcomes for young dogs, and we looked at obesity and ligament ruptures and ligament um, problems. That's a big problem. It is a big problem. And that does seem to be related to the timing of spay neuter, at least in golden retrievers, which are large dogs. We're unfortunately, we can't say anything about cancer yet, but we're at a time where we're seeing many, many, many more cancer diagnoses. Unfortunately, again, our dogs are average age seven. We've had, um, it, there's hardly a week goes by that we don't have a dog diagnosed with cancer. Goldens don't have a long lifespan, do they? Some do, but right. some don't. And that's part of the question we hear a lot from people uh, is something shortening their lives. Sure. Or have we just never captured it before? And that's some of the questions we're trying to answer. There's a lot of anecdotal stuff out there, you know, about, um, uh, well, our dogs aren't living as long. Oh, maybe they are living longer. And and we're trying to help sort that out with this study as well. But the other thing is it's ultimately also a comparative oncology because dogs share the same environment we do. Sure. And can we learn something from these individuals who have a much compressed lifespan that might also influence not only Goldens but other breeds of dogs but other 
animals, which includes people. And I was going to say, maybe humans. I mean, they're always looking for cures for cancer of some kind. Is there a relation between the two? Right, right. And is there something in that we can detect environmentally that could be influencing cancer rates? So you see where your dollars are going. Some very interesting research out there that's ongoing. And it's, you know, it's not an overnight success, is it? So the money is, Carol, needs to be there all the time. Right. You know, that's, and I think that's 70 years of history at the foundation has shown us that science is an investment and it's an investment over time. And so we are there with our researchers from the very beginning of their careers throughout to support them in the work that we're doing because we know that it's not, there's not going to be a quick fix. Right. But everything that we learn improves the health that we're able to provide, the health care for our companion animals. And, you know, as Kelly was, was saying, that also can benefit people as well. Well, the thing that's interesting, when you, you have a sick pet, you go to your vet, they got medicine, and sometimes you sit there and go, well, where'd that medicine come from? Who did that? Where, where'd that money come from? Yeah. And a that, lot of it was Morris Animal yeah, Foundation. Right. Exactly, right. exactly right. So, yeah. And to find out more than it's more than just pets, it's wildlife, it's horses, and, right. and, and they're all such a big part of our life and an important part of our life. Maybe you don't think about the wildlife, but this is it. And like you said, what about the kids? What about my grandkids? What's going to be there for them? And right. how do we solve those problems? Mm-hmm. Well, that's where the Morris Animal Foundation is doing their part. And there's probably a lot more that needs to be needed than what you guys have been doing. But for 70 years, that's awesome. That's yeah. it. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you, Murphy. So as we wrap up here, let's go to the website again. Give me that one more time, Carol, and then what you're doing with this year-end fundraiser. It's morrisanimalfoundation.org. And the year-end fundraiser is a gift match of $200,000 from our board of trustees They'll match every gift up to $200,000 through the end of the year. That's perfect. Well, Carol Borchert and uh, Dr. Kelly Deal, thanks for your work at the Morris Animal Foundation. Thanks for coming in today. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Thank you so much, Murphy. And and donate what you can, you guys. And thanks for listening to Mile High Magazine. I'm Murphy Houston. And, yeah, we'll be back next week. Enjoy the rest of your weekend.